Recently, I was at the doctor for a routine visit, and the nurse was asking me all the questions before the doctor came in, and I have noticed that as I get older, the questions have kind of changed. And she asked me, have you fallen in the last six months? And I just, I did what you did, I laughed. Because, yes, I occasionally fall because I'm walking and I trip over something or I, you know, I'm working and do something, but I don't have a problem falling. So after we had a good laugh, we both agreed she would put no down as the answer for that. The reality is that, that we all do sometimes trip and fall. We drop things and oops is part of our lives. We're talking about purposeful pursuit That is, making our lives count, investing our lives in what matters. And sometimes, if we're honest, spiritually we have oops moments. Maybe we don't even intend to mess up. Maybe we don't even intend to fall spiritually, but it happens. So how do we avoid that? Israel's purposeful pursuit is conquering the land of Canaan. And in Joshua chapter 9, they have an oops moment. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your electronic devices to Joshua chapter 9 as we look at what happens to them and what we can learn from them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things that happened back then were written down so that we would learn, so that we would be encouraged by them. So let's learn and be encouraged by Israel this morning. And as I was studying this passage and I thought about those oops moments and those falls spiritually, I thought maybe I can give you a visual hook that you can kind of hang some of what we're talking about on this morning that that you'll be reminded of every time you see one of these things. Use handrails to keep from falling. And so we're going to talk about some things that in the text I would call here handrails that we can use to help us from falling spiritually as we learn from Israel and their experience. The first handrail is simply beware of complacency. Often we fall physically and spiritually because we take our next steps for granted. Let's just be honest, walking is something that we all do all the time. We don't typically think about it. Now, I'll be honest, when I'm up here on the platform, I probably think about it more than any other time, especially when I'm coming down the steps. You may notice I look down because the last thing I want to do is give you a, a camera moment by falling. But typically, we don't think about our walking because we just do it. But there's a danger when we take that same approach spiritually. Because past results don't guarantee future success. And as we come to Joshua chapter 9, Israel's had past success. They have conquered Jericho. After a brief blip, they conquered Ai. They've had that ceremony of covenant renewal on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. But they're only beginning to take the land now. There are battles ahead And I don't know in this passage if they become complacent, but certainly there's a warning there not to be that. 
And the chapter opens with telling us that there are still battles to come for Israel and reminding us there are battles to come for us. Verse 1, as soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, heard of what? Of the victory at Ai. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And so a coalition begins to form in Canaan. And the geographical references in those verses are taking in the major areas of the land. And so these tribes all begin to gather. The city-states of the land are going to gather and fight against Israel. Now, that coalition is not going to fully form, as we'll see in weeks to come, but Israel doesn't know that yet. But these verses are a reminder, they're a tangible evidence of mankind rebelling against God. They're a tangible picture of Psalm 2 when the psalmist talks about the heathen raging because the nations of Canaan are shaking their fist at God and they are saying, We don't care what your plan is for your people. We are not going to give up our land, which was really God's land. I want you to look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, while I read chapter 5, verse 1, and notice a difference. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan for the people of Israel, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. That initial fear is now gone. And they are saying, we will stand and we will fight. And it's just a good reminder to us that until we reach heaven... There will always be opposition. Until we reach heaven, there will always be spiritual battles. There will be battles for our hearts. Will we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves? Or will we live for self? Will we serve God or will we serve self? Will we Follow the pattern of the world and live ungodly lives or live as God has called us to? Will we give in to materialism or sexual pressure or will we stand for what is right? Those battles are continual and ongoing and we dare not become complacent. If we take our walk with God for granted and we stop regularly reading His Word and talking to Him in prayer, we stop regularly gathering for corporate worship with God's people, we are in danger of a fall because we've become complacent, we've drifted, we've coasted. The first winter we were here in Michigan was a Sunday morning, I think I was the last person to leave, and I was walking across the parking lot and I hit some black ice and bang, I fell flat. Thankfully, I wasn't hurt badly, and thankfully, none of you were around with your phone to video it. But it was a reminder to me that, you know, you can't always take your footing for granted. That you've got to think about where you're walking and watch where you're walking. And that's true spiritually as well. We must beware of complacency in our spiritual walk with God. 
There's a second handrail here in this passage. Expect subtle attacks. Often we fall physically or spiritually because we don't recognize danger in hidden form. Whether it's that black ice instead of blacktop, hidden danger. Or whether it's what's going on all around us in these days. I just read the other day that in the first nine months of 2022, the FCC says there was $231 million lost to text scams. $231 million. Don't get scammed. But even more than that, don't get scammed spiritually. And that's a danger. Because Satan is very, very smart. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how to approach us. And he may try a direct frontal assault on our lives. But most of the time, most of the time he attacks very subtly in ways that we don't anticipate. And that is certainly what he did with Israel. Living 20 or 25 miles away from where Israel's camped at Gilgal are a people called the Gibeonites. They are actually, Gibeon's actually one of four cities that were in the central highlands. And the Gibeonites decide that they are going to make peace with Israel through cunning, craftily, sneakily. Let's just give them an Oscar. Look at their performance beginning in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, now hold on to that. They knew about Jericho and Ai. That's what motivates this. They, on their part, acted with cunning and went out and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. This is an Oscar-worthy performance. This is a scam. They are deceiving by their appearances. The old provisions, the old clothes seem to indicate that they'd come from a long distance. And that's what they're going to say in a minute. And God allowed Israel to make treaties with nations outside of the land. But inside the land they were forbidden for making a treaty. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 20. That's where they can make covenants outside the land. And Deuteronomy 7 says, don't do it in the land. Well, the Gibeonites are in the land. But they're pretending not to be. And Joshua and the people of Israel are initially suspicious. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So they're initially suspicious of it, but these guys are really good. They are really good con artists. They deceive with subtle and lying words as well. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. You're going to hear that three times. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. You notice what they leave out? It's no mention of Jericho and Ai 
Verse 3 says that's exactly why they came, but they don't mention it because if they've been on the road from a far country, they may well not have heard about that. And so they play right into that. They say, we'll serve you. Make a covenant with us. And what others couldn't do with walls and weapons, the Gibeonites do with deceit. And they end up getting their lives spared. And I don't want to minimize their deceit, but I want to give them just about this much credit because in contrast with how the chapter opens with Canaanites defiantly saying, we will not give in, these guys are afraid and they say, we're your servants, they're submissive. In fact, go back and think about their words for just a minute. They say, we, we come from this far country and we've heard a report of what your God has done. And now our elders said to all the inhabitants of our country, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we're your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So there's the deception, but here's the kernel of faith. From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We heard about what he did. And then, as we'll see next week in verse 24, when they're fessing up to Joshua, they say it was because it was told your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. It should sound a little familiar. These are words very reminiscent of what Rahab said back in chapter 2. So while I don't want to uh, condone their deception... I want to acknowledge that something's going on in their heart. There's a little bit of kernel of faith there. But they are deceptive. And in their deception, they remind us that we need to expect subtle attacks as we walk through this world, and we need to stay on guard. Sometimes those subtle attacks will come as Peter warns in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Israelites will face roaring lion-type Canaanites as we move on. But these Canaanites, they're more like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So Satan comes to us disguised, subtly, cunningly, and he gives us things and situations that seem to make sense or seem good. After all, that's what he did with Eve in Genesis 3, right? The, the fruit looked good. It seemed wise to take it. He loves to put us into situations that seem like they're small and the temptations that don't seem very big and then trip us up by those small and subtle attacks. I've always liked this prayer and sometimes think of it in the morning. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. 
I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't lied or cheated. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. And I'm thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. That's, that's what it is. The subtle, simple, seemingly innocuous attacks that we must be on guard against. And we need God's help. Which brings us to the third handrail in this passage. Guard against prayerlessness. See, often we fail and we fall because we're distracted from what matters. Oh, a month or so ago, I pulled into the church parking lot early on Sunday morning, and usually it's just Pastor Steve and me, but there was a pickup truck driving around, and I was getting out looking, thinking, what is that? And then I realized they were salting the parking lot. And then I realized I was standing on black ice again. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't fall, but I almost did because I was distracted. And so often in our spiritual lives, we allow things to distract us. And we forget how much we need God. Israel and Joshua think, we've got this. I mean, some guys on donkeys with worn out clothes and sacks, they don't look like much of a threat. They use their eyes, they use their common sense, and they forget that the battle is not primarily physical. I mean, these guys from Gibeon, they looked like they'd come from a long distance. The empirical evidence says, yeah, they're, they've traveled a long way. They sounded good. They sounded sincere. But Joshua, I think he's the author of most of the book, later writes these words. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Joshua looks back with 20-20 hindsight and he says, we didn't pray. We didn't ask God. Maybe the matter seemed too routine to bother God with. I don't know. Maybe they felt like they were okay by themselves. One commentator says, neglect of prayer always suggests pride in our own judgment. Boy, that'll kind of stab you at the heart, won't it? We don't pray because we think we're okay by ourselves. Joshua even had the resources he needed that he could have asked. You go back into the book of Numbers when Moses is commissioning Joshua, and here's what God says. You shall invest him, Joshua, with some of your, Moses' authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Now before a bunch of you come up to me after the service and say, what was the Urim? I will tell you, we don't know. But they had the Urim and the Thummim that were a means of God's guidance Joshua had that available to him. All he had to do was go to Eleazar and say, look, these guys want to make a treaty. Could you ask God whether we should or not? And God would have said no. But they were prayerless. They didn't take the time to talk to God 
about it. And they're deceived into making or literally cutting a covenant. An honest but significant mistake because of prayerlessness. You and I need to guard against prayerlessness. I need that reminder. I'm assuming you probably do too. Because without it, we will fall. We will fail. Jesus comes to his three inner circle disciples and he found them asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter and the disciples didn't pray. And so when the time came, they ran. And when the time came, Peter denied Jesus because of prayerlessness. Paul spends a chunk of Ephesians 6 talking about the armor of God, offensive and defensive armor, but he comes to the end of that section and he wraps it up in verse 18 of Ephesians 6 by saying, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to the end, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Notice praying, prayer, supplication, supplication. Four references in those short words to the need for prayer in our lives. As a pastor, I need to grow in this area. You probably do too. There are weeks when, when I come to the end of the week and I think, oh, I have not prayed over this text enough. I need to pray. I need to ask God to forgive me for that and pray about what I'm preaching. Now, not so much this week because I had a reminder right in the sermon to keep praying about this. I need to pray that God opens doors and then opens my eyes to opportunities to share the gospel. I need to pray that God helps me to be a faithful husband, a faithful dad, a faithful grandpa, a faithful pastor. As a church, we need to grow in our prayer. When you gather together with your friends, a small group or your Sunday school class, take some opportunities occasionally just to pray. Tonight, after a short business session, we'll have opportunity for corporate prayer. I encourage you to come tonight and spend some time praying over our pastoral search and over the summer ministries that are going to happen, that they'll have an impact in Portage for the gospel. See, we tend to use God and prayer is a last resort, not our first need, and it is our first need. I don't know who this gentleman is. I even Googled him and didn't come up with a satisfactory answer, but he has a powerful statement. C.W. Renwick says, the only footprints in the sands of time that will really last are the ones made after knee prints. Prayer. We need to beware and guard ourselves against prayerlessness. There's a fourth handrail in this passage. And this one Israel actually does well with. Hold fast to our integrity even when it hurts. See, sometimes we fall because our steps get compromised. For you ladies, you may be walking along and a heel breaks and you fall because your steps got compromised. Guys, we may have a sole come loose on our shoe or something or a shoelace come loose and we trip and fall because our walk got compromised. And that'll, help, that'll happen spiritually as well. Often we fall because we don't hold on to our integrity, our honesty. 
After three days, Israel finds out that they've been duped. That it was all a con. So now what? Verse 16, at the end of three days after they'd made a covenant with them, they heard, we don't know how, somehow, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, that all the congregation murmured against their leaders. So they arrive at this city. What are they going to do? They have bound themselves by covenant to them. And when they don't attack, the congregation murmurs. Same thing they used to do back in the wilderness, only this time maybe with some justification. Maybe part of their murmuring is, okay, we have messed up again. We have made peace with people we're not supposed to make peace with. What is God going to do to us? The leaders of Israel say, you can't attack. In fact, the passage goes on to say, all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, lest God's judgment fall because of the oath that we swore to them, an oath in the name of Jehovah God. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. They recognized that their oath in the name of God is binding. Maybe for precedent, they're looking back to Genesis 27. When Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him the blessing and the birthright, he gets it through deception, but it stands. And now they say, we've made this covenant in God's name. God's reputation is at stake as well as ours. We will not violate it. Even a king can't cancel this covenant. Saul tries later. You can read in 2 Samuel 21 about that. How Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites, and guess what? God's wrath fell on Israel because of that. And so the Gibeonites are allowed to live. They're going to live as slaves, as servants of Israel, people who chop wood and haul water, and we'll look more at that next week. But Israel demonstrates for us an important handrail to hold fast to our integrity, even when it hurts. The psalmist talks about that in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's part of being in fellowship with God. So are you a person of your word? Can people trust you? Young people, can your parents trust you? Adults, can your boss trust you? Can your spouse trust you? Are you one who follows through on your word, follows through with your commitments, even when it hurts, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient? As God's people, we are called to hold fast to our integrity because it's not just our reputation at stake, it's His. Just like Israel knew God's reputation was at stake. The story is told of a pastor who was uh, traveling to another city and he went up to the train station to buy a ticket and he told the clerk what he wanted and he gave him money and the clerk gave him a ticket and handed him change and the pastor looked down and realized he'd given him way too much change. 
And he had a moment of conscience crisis, you know. I could have nice lunch or something on this. But then he said, excuse me, sir, but you gave me too much change. And the clerk said, oh, I know. He said, see, I was at your church yesterday, and I heard you preach about honesty. I thought I'd see if you practice what you preach. It's not just preachers that are being watched, folks. All of us who name the name of Christ are being watched to see if our lives line up with what God says, whether we're living lives of integrity. So oops happens, doesn't it? I mean, we all mess up. We all sin. And when that happens, there's a price to pay. Israel has a price to pay. The people murmur against the leadership. In chapter 10, as we'll see next week, the Lord willing, they have to go to battle and fight for those people they just made a covenant with. And as I meditated on this passage this week, I wondered, don't have text to prove it, but I wondered if as Israel later doesn't conquer all the land and they don't drive out all the Canaanites, if they said, you know, Joshua and the elders, they made peace with Gibeon, so it's okay, we can make peace with this city. We know their next generation, their children, lived among and intermingled and intermarried with the Canaanites. It became easier. There are always consequences to pay for our sins, for our oopses, for our mistakes. So we need to grab a hold of the handrails so that we minimize those by the grace of God to the best of our ability. I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, our family was given a trip to Mexico. And uh, while we were there, the boys and I climbed, you could do it back then, you can't anymore, but climbed this Mayan pyramid at Chichen Itza. Christy and Peggy were too smart to do it. They stayed at the bottom. If you look at that pyramid, you'll notice something that isn't there, I hope. There's not a handrail in sight. That wasn't such a big deal climbing up. But when we got to the top and we turned around, we realized the Mayans were pretty short, small people. The steps were about this wide. And we got to go down. And at that moment, I would love for there to have been a handrail. But there wasn't. But there are for us as we walk through our lives trying to serve Christ. Handrails that make it so whether it's a pyramid or our daily walk, we can walk without oops. But the good news is, when we fail, when we fall, God is gracious to forgive us. We just celebrated that a few minutes ago. The cross of Jesus Christ pays for your sins and my sins If you don't know Christ as Savior, that is your first need. Everything we've talked about this morning pales by comparison to your need to admit that you're a sinner and trust Christ to save you. And if you have never done that, please speak to a friend, speak to me before you leave today. If you have done it, let's just be honest and say we all have those moments when, oops, but we can go to the cross. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And we're going to see next week, the Lord willing, how God's grace even overrules the oopses of our life. 
But this morning, this passage is warning us our purposeful pursuit can be a perilous one. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Beware of complacency. Keep praying. Watch out for subtle attacks. And hold tightly to your integrity by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, there is not a person in this room, including the guy standing right here, there's not a person watching online who has never failed, who's never dropped the ball, who's never had an oops, who's never fallen. So I pray for those who don't know you, and I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ as I pray for myself, that we would quickly avail ourselves of grace for forgiveness. And I pray that you would help us to learn from the example of the people of Israel. Grab a hold of those handrails that will help us so that we fall less frequent. But thank you for your grace. It's in our Savior's name we pray.